This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to For Your Benefit, presented by NITP, the federal leader in retirement planning seminars sponsored by WEPA. Join NITP for an hour of plain talk on planning your future. You've got questions, and they've got answers. Welcome to the July 2023 Bob Lines, and here I am with Tammy Flanagan, Senior Benefit Director, NITP, Cup Exec Columnist, and knower of all things federal. Good morning. Good morning, Bob. Good to be back with you today. Yeah, yeah these, are, these are special times when we can do it together. Right. So, I can't believe we're almost at the end of summer, it seems like. I see those back-to-school sales being advertised. <laughs> oh, well, unfortunately, you live in Florida. Um, when the fall hits here, and, it's, and to be frank, it's not cold. We're, we're broadcasting Metro D.C. It can get cold, but not right away. <laughs> so what we, we're going to talk about federal retirement, fact or fiction. I like that. So That's- what are we going to cover today? We're going to talk about some things that come up either when we're teaching seminars or working with individual federal employees that are very common, sometimes misconceptions, sometimes misunderstandings, sometimes myths, but we're going to put the truth behind some of these stories that we hear and questions that we get asked today. You want to start okay. off with the first one on the list? Okay, fire, fire away. All right, well, the first question that's been coming up in recent years, maybe it won't come up so much this year, since the inflation rate it seems to be coming down a little bit, but it's when do I get my first cost of living adjustment? How does cost of living adjustments work once I retire? And because of the high inflation that was added to social security benefits last year and civil service retirements and even FERS retirement benefits, I got a lot of questions about this particular topic from recent retirees who were surprised either that they didn't get the COLA or it wasn't what they thought it was going to be. So it really pertains to retirees because employees get general pay adjustments. They don't really get cost of living adjustments. So once you retire, the purpose of this COLA or cost of living adjustment is to keep the buying power in your retirement so that over the decades, hopefully decades of life after retirement, you can still buy the same groceries and live in the same house and do all the things you did before because your retirement benefits have pace with inflation. However, under FERS, and most of our retiring employees today are retiring under the FERS retirement system, they're getting a delayed diet COLA. And what I mean by that is that if you retire under FERS and you're under age 62 on a regular FERS retirement, not a law enforcement or firefighter or disability, but just a regular optional FERS retirement, there is no COLA until you're 62. So if you retire at your minimum retirement age of 57, and even though you might have 35 years of service, you're not gonna get your first cost of living adjustment for five years, which is okay if inflation's running about 1%, but if inflation's running 8.7%, that's gonna take a hit on your buying power over those years. So that's the one thing that you have to be aware of before you retire at a younger age. The second thing is in the first year of retirement, you may get a prorated COLA. I had an email from somebody who retired at age 62. They had just turned 62 in December of last year and they retired on December 31st. And they were hoping to get the COLA on January 1st, you know, their first retirement check they thought was going to have a 7.7% COLA. No, that's not the way it works because they would have to be retired a full year to get the first COLA. So they're going to get their first cost of living adjustment this December 1st, and it will show up in their January retirement check. So just keep in mind that once you retire, the COLA is generally not payable till 62. And your first one for FERS and CSRS for that matter is generally prorated based on how many months you were retired before December 1st. What, what happens to people in a category like uh, uh, military or law enforcement where you kind of sort of have to get out by a certain date, which would be earlier than the COLA date? Do they right. get a diet COLA? 
Yeah, well, military retirees and federal employees who are under law enforcement, firefighter, air traffic controller provisions, these are all groups of federal employees who are subject to a mandatory retirement that is before age 62. Fortunately for them, they get immediate COLAs. So the first year that they're retired, they'll get their first cost of living adjustment. So in other words, if you had a law enforcement officer retiring on July 31st this month, they would get a COLA for the months of August, September, October, and November, and their first COLA would be four twelfths, four months, four twelfths of the 2023 inflation rate, which some are predicting now to be close to 3%, but we won't really know that till the end of September's CPI index is announced. Now, with some of the uh, groups, uh, they can retire at a certain age and look forward to doing it, but can they then go back in as a uh, retired annuitant and would yeah. that impact any cash flow? Yeah, you can retire from federal service and some, some employees, as you said, come back and become reemployed after retirement. And it all depends on uh, how you retire. Was it a voluntary retirement? Was it a mandatory separation? Did you go out under disability? So the important thing is when you're thinking about going back to work for the federal government after you've retired, be sure to let your new employer know that you're receiving a retirement benefit so they can look into that to find out whether or not your retirement's going to continue or you're going to have an offset to your salary by the amount of your retirement. So there's different rules for different types of appointments and different types of separations and I don't want to get into that today because we could take the whole rest of the show talking about the ins and outs. I will tell you that the majority of federal employees who retire don't become reemployed annuitants, but it is a possibility and sometimes it does make sense. All right. Well, that, that's, that's a good enough explanation um, for the rest of the show. So, <laughs> um, health insurance, I mean, we got a retirement date, but what do I need to understand as a retiring federal employee? How does it impact my health insurance? Well, as most people know, your health insurance as a federal employee is one of our most valuable federal benefits. And the majority of people are really making sure, they wanna make sure that that health insurance is gonna continue into retirement. But how does that work? Do you pay the same amount? What are the requirements to keep it? So there's a lot of rules that you need to be aware of before you retire to make sure that that's a continuous benefit and it stays with you for the rest of your life. So there's two main requirements to keep health insurance. The first one is you have to be eligible for an immediate retirement. That means one that's gonna start next month. So if I were to leave federal service today on, what, what did we say, what's July 24th? I have to be old enough to retire. I have to have enough service to retire so that my retirement starts August 1st in order to meet that immediate retirement requirement. Mm. And that can also be somebody who's old enough to retire, but doesn't have 30 years. They might only have 10 years of service. They might be 57 years old and they're gonna delay or postpone their retirement. They can also maintain health benefits, but they're not gonna have it continuously. So they're gonna resign from federal service postpone the application perhaps until they're 62. And as long as they were eligible for that reduced benefit when they left federal service, they can reinstate the health insurance when they postpone or start to receive that postponed annuity. So that's the immediate requirement. The second requirement is you have to be covered by FEHB for the last five years of your federal career. Now, some people think, well, that means I got to be in Blue Cross for five years. I got to be in Kaiser for five years. Not necessarily. You can be in any of the federal employee health benefit plans. You can switch plans during open season. Even retirees can switch plans during open season. So you don't have to be in the same plan. You just have to be in the overall FEHB umbrella for five years. In fact, you don't even have to be paying for the health insurance. Your spouse could be having you covered under self plus one or self and family coverage. And that still counts as you being covered. So the only time you're not going to meet that five-year test is if you were in a private sector health plan or maybe a state or local government health plan through your spouse's employment. You want to jump into that federal plan at least five years prior to retirement so you have the option 
to keep that coverage during your life after retirement and even cover your spouse and other dependent family members as well. Okay. Uh, we've got a couple questions here. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think you uh, touched on this, but let's make sure. If mm -hmm. under FERS, what is the minimum age and minimum years of service to obtain an immediate annuity under FEHB? Okay. So in order to, to be considered retiring with an immediate retirement, I'm just going to talk about the general rules for FERS. We're not going to get into the special groups for foreign service or law enforcement or air traffic controllers, but for the general federal employee population, you have to reach your minimum retirement age, which if you were born in 1970 or later, that's 57. If you're older, like I am, it would be 56. So it's somewhere between, most likely between 56 and 57. I don't think there's too many federal employees much older than me on the job, maybe a few. Um, so you got to be at that minimum retirement age, and you have to have a minimum of 10 years of service to be eligible for an immediate retirement at, at that age. Now, you can have more service, and that's fine, but you have to have at least 10 years. Now, if you're 62 or older than 62 and you only have a short career, maybe you only have five years of federal service, you also would meet that immediate requirement because at age 62, the service requirement drops down to five years of civilian federal employment. Your military service can add to that, but you have to have a minimum of five years of civilian federal employment to maintain health insurance if you're retiring at 62 or later. So 10 years before 62, you got to be at your MRA or older. And at 62 or older, you got to have at least five years of civilian service to qualify for an immediate retirement under FERS. That doesn't tell you nothing about the formula or the calculation or the value, but that does meet the requirement to keep your health insurance. Okay, and then there's a part two to this. If under CSRS and GPO applies, is taking Social Security at age 62 recommended? If under civil service, so is this person retired, do you know? I'm um, looking at it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, let me just make a few comments, not knowing for sure the whole story. So as a civil service retiree, let's assume the person's retired and they're turning 62, which means if they have enough credits to qualify for Social Security, that means they've worked at least 10 years outside of their civil service career so they can collect an earned Social Security benefit, that benefit's going to be re recalculated under something called the windfall elimination provision, which is going to lower the value of the benefit, but not eliminate it. It's just going to make it less, less than what it would have been under the general formula. And whether that employee decides to go ahead and file for Social Security as early as 62 or delay that benefit until 70 is going to depend on a lot of other factors that are pretty much the same, whether you're affected by the windfall provision or you're under FERS or private industry in trying to make that same decision. So it's either a matter of collecting a smaller benefit at a younger age or a larger benefit by delaying your application to your full retirement age, or maybe even as late as age 70. Because the longer you wait between 62 and 70, the more generous that benefit becomes, even if it was affected by the windfall provision because you retired under CSRS. So that's kind of a, a math problem, right? We need to know, you know which way is gonna make more sense based on factors such as, do I need the money? How's my health? Uh, what's my life expectancy look like? You know, some factors like that might help us decide what to do about claiming it early or delaying it. You know, the nice thing for a CSRS retiree, especially one who has 30, 40 years of federal service, they're probably not dependent on that Social Security benefit to be able to afford retirement. In fact, it's probably not much of a benefit if it's only based on 10 years of wages. So it's really a matter of what, what are they going to do with the money? Do they need it now? Is it worth delaying it? Now, the thing you asked me about, Bob, was what if they're affected by the government pension offset? And that would be their ability to, to file for Social Security on their spouse's work record. So that's less likely uh, to be payable because under the government pension offset, 
when a civil service retiree files for spousal benefits or even widow's benefits from Social Security, they're offset or reduced by two-thirds of their government pension. So if you take two-thirds of the typical CSRS retirement benefit and reduce that from a Social Security spousal or widow's benefit, nine times out of ten it's going to offset at 100%. So many of our CSRS retirees are not eligible to receive spousal benefits and sometimes even widow's benefits due to that GPO. Now there is a bill in Congress that would eliminate both the GPO and the windfall provision, but um, and it does have support. So for the first time in a long time, we've seen a, a lot of co-sponsors on this bill, but you know, having co-sponsors and having a bill is not the same as the legislation getting passed and signed into law. So we can be hopeful. We can support that legislation by contacting our elected representatives, maybe joining NARF, who is um, fighting that legislation. But for right now, we still have to deal with both of those, as Mike Causey used to call it, the evil twins. <laughs> All righty. Let's see. Why don't we take a break? I see we're a little, two minutes over time, Andrew. So let's right. take a break. And uh, Tammy and I will be back after the break. Times have changed, but WEPA's mission remains the same to promote the health, welfare, and financial well-being of civilian federal employees. WEPA offers group term life insurance to civilian federal employees with up to $1.5 million in coverage, regardless of salary. As a WEPA member, you can access exclusive rates and benefits not available to the general public. How does this compare to Fegley? Unlike Fegley, WEPA's coverage amounts are not capped by your salary. WEPA will cover your family as well. For your children, WEPA offers double the benefits that Fegley offers. And for your spouse, WEPA offers 20 times more coverage than Fegley. 20 times more coverage! WEPA's coverage is also portable if you decide to leave the federal government or retire. You can even supplement or replace your existing policy. See how much you could save by visiting waepa.org today. All righty, welcome back to today's show, July 24th. We're here with Tammy Flanagan, Senior Benefit Director, NITP, GovExec columnist. And how long have we known each other, Tammy? 30 I, years? Well, I've known you since 1987 or 1988, but I don't think we met actually until maybe 1990. I worked for you before we even met. <laughs> that's that's a symbol of trust right <laughs> well uh, well trusting one, somebody i don't know who <laughs> one, one of the best career days of my life anyway um it's been a good we got a we got a um, um a, a question uh that came in and it and it's um i think it fits in here okay is it opinion or fact that the stocks will always recover and go to the new highs? We're talking about a lot of things, one of which is cash flow. So um, at best I know, stocks aren't guaranteed to go up. That's right. That's right. I mean, we it, it's, you know, it's about the best thing we have to hedge against inflation, according to, to many experts on the subject. Because if you look over past history, the stock market consistently has outperformed other safer investments. So there is risk. You know, there's volatility. There's market risk in investing in the stock market. But over long periods of time, that risk tends to be mitigated to some extent. Um, so you know, we can't make any promises that the stock market's always going to go up higher than it did before. But if you were to try to guess, you know, is the market going to be higher 30 years from now than it is today? I think most people would probably think, yeah, it probably will be. What do yeah. you think, Bob? <laughs> I would say yes, too. And I'm I'm not a doomsdayer, but and I'm, I'm an accountant, so I'm, I, I'm, I'm trained to think negatively with regards to cash flow. And I don't mean that in a bad sense, just so that people understand um, the time value of money, et cetera. So. Right. All right, then we got another one in here. Is it uh, is it opinion or fact that it's not necessarily necessarily to enroll in Part B Medicare if one receives VA benefits? 
Well, I, I can't profess to be an expert on the military side of things. You know, we focus mostly on civilian federal employees. Um, the VA does uh, bill Medicare, so you can have Medicare coverage. And the other thing is if you go outside of the VA for services, you may have to rely on your Medicare coverage to help you pay the bills. So I wouldn't necessarily think that's a true statement, but I would check with the VA to be sure. Um, I thought the question was going to come in, do I need Medicare Part B if I have FEHB, the Federal Employees Health Benefit Plan? And for most federal employees, the answer there is no, but that's changing for the Postal Service because starting in 2025, OPM is rolling out the new Postal Service Health Benefit Program, which is going to have a requirement to continue FEHB past age 65, retirees who retired from Postal Service employment will have to be enrolled in Medicare A and Medicare B in order to continue FEHB. But currently, no one is required to have it. Is it a good idea? Typically, yes. Uh, typically, having the combination of Medicare A and B, that's inpatient care and outpatient care of Medicare, is good to have along with your federal health benefits because most federal health plans, not every one, but most of them, will provide incentives to enroll in Medicare Part B. They'll either waive their own deductibles, co-pays, and co-insurance so that you have this wraparound coverage of having almost zero out-of-pocket expense for your health care. That's, that's a win, especially if you're older and you suffer from maybe a couple of chronic health problems. Having no co-pays, no co-insurance can be a big savings. The other thing is you can generally pick the plan within that plan family such as with Blue Cross, you have Blue Cross Standard, Blue Cross Basic, and Blue Cross Focus. Well, in that family of plans, Blue Cross Basic is the one that tends to provide the most benefit of those retirees who have Medicare because Blue Cross Basic has a relatively uh, reasonable premium. You know, for self plus one coverage, it's a little over 400 a month. For self only coverage, it's a little under $200 a month which is a big savings over their standard option. Plus it provides a rebate of $800 a year towards the Part B premium for each family member. Both spouses would each get $800 a year if it's a married couple or a self-only enrollment would get an $800 rebate. So the Blue Cross Basic plan tends to be the one that that family of plans is kind of pushing towards their Medicare retirees. If you look at GEHA, they have a lot of different plans. They've got high deductible, standard option, high option, and their, their plan with Medicare benefits tends to be their high option plan. Again, a fairly reasonable plan gives a $1,000 rebate for Part B, waives deductibles, co-pays, and co-insurance. So that's the plan if I was in that GEHA family of plans that I would look at. So check, you know, if you're kind of married to Blue Cross or married to GEHA, look at that plan's options and find out which one seems to work best with Medicare. And if you look on their website, they'll usually have a, a drop-down menu saying our plan and Medicare, or how this plan coordinates with Medicare, to tell you more about any of the benefits that are offered for those retirees who have Medicare as their primary insurance. Um, the other thing you're starting to see, and you'll probably see more about this and hear more about this during the upcoming open season in November, are the FEHB plans offering the option of a second enrollment in a Medicare Advantage plan. These are ones that are relatively new. Um, I, I, they push a lot of the advantages, and there's quite a few advantages of doing that second enrollment in Medicare Advantage that include things like free gym membership, free meal delivery after a hospital stay, free um, non-emergency transportation to the doctors, uh, some of the plans offer, along with lower premiums, rebates on Medicare Part B or reimbursement of Medicare Part B premiums. What I'm not sure of, and this is why I don't typically recommend these, although um, I would love to hear from people who have them, is that these are plans that have a different drug formulary. You're enrolled in Medicare Part D. And if you're subject to the income-related monthly adjustment amount or IRMA, you're going to pay a higher premium, not only for Medicare Part B, but also for Medicare Part D. Um, so be wary of those Medicare Advantage plans. Make sure your doctors accept that plan. 
before you jump into it. I'm not saying they're good or bad. I just don't know enough about them. But there's a couple of things there that uh, put up a little bit of a caution sign whenever I talk about Medicare Advantage. But the but the traditional FEHB plans like Blue Cross Basic, GEHA, High Option, Aetna, Direct Plan, these are all plans that don't require that second step of enrolling in the Advantage option and still give you quite a, quite a few good incentives uh, to get you to think about enrolling in Medicare Part B. I, I generally would recommend it. Okay, just, um, just a, a quickie here. What are the requirements to continue my health insurance coverage into retirement? Well, we talked about that saying that there's the, the immediate retirement requirement. You have to be eligible to retire when you separate and have the five years of coverage. Now, what we didn't talk about is when you retire and you have that health insurance, what about the cost of it? Retirees are paid once a month for their FERS or CSRS retirement benefit. So the premium is now withheld monthly. You know, we're used to bi-weekly if we're still employed, but as a retiree, we pay that premium once a month. So it looks like it costs twice as much, but it's really the same price. We're still just paying the employee share on a monthly basis. Uh, the difference price-wise is the fact that as employees, we pay our health insurance premiums with pre-tax dollars, which definitely lowers the cost because we're not paying tax on the cost of that health plan. However, in retirement, we're paying the health insurance premiums with after-tax dollars. Retirees don't have this benefit that's called premium conversion that employees get to enjoy that was never extended to retirees. So if you're part of a federal couple and one of you is going to retire and the other spouse is going to continue working, it may make sense for the working spouse to carry the health insurance for the couple since they'll continue to get that pre-tax benefit when paying for their health insurance premiums, at least until they're both retired. So that might be something to keep in mind. Okay. I got another one. Um, do I have to begin taking payments from my TSP account when I retire from federal service? No, this doesn't have too much to do with the medical side, but I thought it was a, um, a good question um, to look at. That's right. Well, I guess the one thing we'd have to ask that person, Bob, and you know this as much as I do, is how old they are, right? Because if they have reached the age of required minimum distributions, they might have to start taking distributions from their thrift. Isn't that right? That's exactly right. But I don't, what, I don't need it. <laughs> right? Pardon me? So sometimes people say, well, I don't need it. I don't want to take it now. I'll get more later. And that's not. Well, the they don't have to spend it, right? They just have to take it out and pay tax on it. They could reinvest it somewhere else after tax. Exactly. But, um, but they, they do have to start taking a taxable distribution from their traditional thrift. And if they don't do that, the TSP will help them out by doing it for them. Um, I know the RMD age has increased over the past few years. You know, we've had the SECURE Act and the SECURE Act 2.0. So now I think for many of us, the age is 73, maybe going up to 75 for younger folks. Is that right? That's absolutely right. Mm -hmm. So if you're at that age at retirement, then do be aware that you're going to be subject to your first RMD distribution in the year that you retired. So if you retired December 31st of 2023 and you're over that RMD age, you're going to have to take that distribution by April 1st of 2024. Although, was there an exception made for this year because of that new Secure Act 2.0, Bob? Do you know? Right. They had a one-year hiatus, so to speak. Yeah. So so no one really has to take it this year, I don't think. You got it. Right? Okay. So yeah, check with your check with your tax advisor or call Bob up and he'll he'll um let you know what, what the truth is for you because this is something that has just recently changed. It's still evolving. The TSP does have a good booklet um, on their website. You can get it on important tax information about your TSP payments and they have a nice chart showing when you're due for that first RMD distribution. But on the other hand, let's say you're retiring at 57 or at age 62 and you're nowhere near the RMD age. Then there is no requirement that you start taking any distributions from your thrift. You can leave the money in the TSP. 
It can stay invested. You can still move it around between the GCFS and I funds. You can move it into the mutual fund window, I suppose, if, if you're interested in that, or use the L fund. So all of that's still available to you once you retire. The only thing you won't be able to do after you retire from federal services to contribute to the TSP. You might be able to move money from uh, certain IRAs or 401k plans into your thrift. You can consolidate your retirement savings. However, you can't make new contributions. You can't have an allotment out of your FERS or CSRS benefit going into the thrift, and you can't write a check and you know put it into your TSP account. So you're limited to how much can continue to be put into your thrift, but you don't have to take it out. If you don't need the money, you want to let it grow for a few more years, maybe you're going to work a second career or become self-employed, you, you can leave that money in the TSP and it, it hopefully will grow until the time comes when you want to start taking those distributions. That's good. And it gets, I guess at one point there might be a, a scratch your head. What do I do? Should I file for social security at 62 or should I wait till the latest date to maximize the cash flow? Um, and that's, that's, that's not, that's not necessarily a tax issue. It's a finance issue. Mm, um, it can be both. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then, you know, people say, what do I do? And, and well, let's look at the cash flow. And uh, if you, you take it early, you're still going to pay taxes on it. If you take it later, it's going to effectively be like an investment. It's going to build with the um, with the annual payment. And yeah. if you don't need it, uh, maybe you get it somewhere else. Now, somebody's saying, well, where are all these places I can go to get more money? Well, you know, there's generally three sources that we're going to be looking at. Uh, we're going to get the annuity. Um, or maybe maybe we get a second uh, second career job or part time job, and then distribution. And when do I take Social Security? A lot of you know a lot of moving parts there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would recommend too to go back and listen. I I think if you put in the search engine on Federal News Network, put the name Mary Beth Franklin. We've had her on the show several times, and she's she's my go to guru on Social Security matters and Social Security strategies and she talked about this very question about, you know, should I take it early? Should I delay it? And some of it has to do with whether I'm single, whether I'm part of a married couple. There's some strategies for married couples that can be employed. A um, couple of things uh, related to that would be whether or not I have children who are eligible for Social Security. For instance, I have a cousin who was 55 when he got married and started a family so by the time he was 62, he had a four-year-old and, and I think a seven-year-old. And he filed for Social Security at age 62. And each of his children received 50% of his full benefit amount. And his, wow. um, and his, uh, his own benefit was at 75% of his, they call it your primary insurance amount. Everything Social Security is based on your full retirement age, which is for many people today, 67. So he got 75% of his full benefit amount. Uh, each of his two children each got 50% of his full benefit amount. So between the three of them, they collected 175% of his social security benefits starting when he was 62 and claimed his benefit. If he would have delayed social security, his children would have missed out on those benefits for those years and they could receive their benefits until they were 18 and out of high school. So that was a good reason to file at 62 since he was fully retired at that point. So you have to look at your situation. Like you said, Bob, you gotta look at your cash flow. Can you afford to delay social security and still retire? You, know, you wanna maintain your lifestyle. You don't wanna sacrifice you know, being able to go to the movies or go out to dinner just because you're delaying social security. So everybody's situation is gonna be a little different but you do have that eight year window to figure out what should I do? What's the best thing for me to do when it comes to this, this decision? Maybe after we take our break, Bob, I'll, I'll give you a couple of other hints on that topic. Cause there's, there's a lot that can be said about when's the best time to claim social security, especially if you have the luxury of delaying it. Well, I think it's a, a great idea to take a break. I'm sure that after listening to us talk, um, people would need uh, to, to stretch and then please need come back. <laughs> yeah. Okay. 
Who do you trust when making your most important decisions? National Institute of Transition Planning has been the trusted source for federal retirement planning, serving new, mid-career, and pre-retirement federal employees for more than 30 years. NITP's subject matter experts bring more than 800 years of collective expertise on federal benefits, financial, transition, and estate planning. Visit NITPinc.com. That's NITPinc.com to sign up for their free monthly newsletter and information about free webinars. Are you at the mid-career stage of your federal career, or do you plan to retire in the next five years and wonder if you are prepared for retirement? No matter what career stage you are, it's never too early to dot the I's and cross the T's. NITP now offers online open enrollment training to help you understand your federal benefits package and financial planning options with tips and tools to plan and fine-tune your retirement planning goals. Visit NITPINC.com to download the current brochure and calendar. All right, and welcome back to For Your Benefit. We're here with Tammy Flanagan. It's uh, 1042 Eastern Time. So we have about 15 minutes or so uh, left. And did I think we touched on, should I file for Social Security at 62? Or did we cover? We, we got through a lot of it. We didn't finish it. In fact, you know, we, we probably will never finish that discussion. It's a discussion that has so many moving parts. Um, one of the things I wanted to say about that decision of should I take it now, should I delay it till later, a lot of folks that I talk to are focused on this so-called break-even age when it comes to Social Security. And what they mean is that if I take it at 62 versus delaying it till 67 or even 70, you know, how long would I have to live before the lines intersect, meaning that if I get a smaller benefit for more years or a bigger benefit for fewer years, what age would I have to live to before it's the same amount of money? And for most of us, it's right around age 81. So in other words, if I took my benefit at 62 and received a, a reduced amount until 81 versus let's say my husband who has, let's say the same career as I did, delayed his until 70 and got a much bigger check and he lived to be 81, we both would have received the same total amount of money in that situation. I just would have kept getting a smaller benefit and he would keep getting the larger benefit. So if we live a long time, if we outlive that so-called break-even age, we'll end up with more overall money total if we delay our social security. But to me, that's not really the point because who cares if we break even? If we die early, we don't need the money anymore. But if we live a long time, we don't want to run out of money. So I look at the delaying of our social security benefit to result in a hedge against the risk of longevity. You know, not that we don't want to live a long time, but if we do live a long time, and I'm talking not just 82 years old, but 85, 90, 95, 100, you know, we know people today who live past their 100th birthday. So we want to make sure that during those years of life expectancy that we still have, that we have these lifetime income streams, whether it's social security or our FERS or CSRS retirement or for the military retiree, those benefits that continue for as long as we live, no matter how long we live. And to add to that benefit, they get cost of living adjustments. So if we can maximize that social security benefit that's a lifetime payout with COLA, then that's a good hedge against that long lifetime. So for those people who see longevity in their family history, that are living a healthy lifestyle that look as though, hey, if all goes well, I may make it well past age 85, then delaying social security can really go a long ways towards reducing the amount of payments I have to take for my retirement savings in those later years. So I think thinking about, and I hate to say living a long time is a risk, but it is a financial risk because a lot of our numbers that we calculate for retirement are based on normal life expectancies. And you know, many of us have a 50-50 chance of living longer than a so-called normal life expectancy. Boy, so what's a normal life expectancy for a female and what's a normal life expectancy for a male? And I don't know anybody that's got the great answer to that. Yeah, there's some tables you can look up on the Census Bureau on some other uh, financial websites that show that. And it, it's a slight hedge for women, I suppose, still today than it is for men. But when you have a married couple, there's a much better chance of one spouse making it past age 85 
And if you look at the number of people receiving Social Security benefits between the ages of 85 and 95, and then for 95 and beyond, it drops way down, but there's still about 100,000 people getting benefits past age 95. Um, it's something to think about, especially seeing that as we live longer, as, as time goes on and there's medical advances and cures for certain illnesses of aging and medications coming out to uh, you know, slow the growth of Alzheimer's disease, you know, those are things that tend to make us think that we're gonna see more centenarians over the next 50 years than what we saw over the last 50 years. So definitely something I think to think about. Okay, here's a, here's a, well, let's do one, one more um, question under the questions. Should sure. I retire when I am first eligible to collect a benefit or should I continue working? Yeah, so that's a good question because, you know, when we spend, some of us, not everybody, some people spend their career, and I remember back when we had that single benefit civil service plan, you would have people putting a timeline on their computer, a little countdown clock saying, I've got 10 years, nine months, 15 days, and three hours left before I can retire. So they would be really focusing on that retirement date pretty much their whole career. I don't see people doing that as much anymore because I don't think a lot of people know when they can afford to retire, let alone when they're eligible to retire. So we don't see as many of those countdown clocks on, on computer screens anymore like we used to. So mm -hmm. when you're eligible, when you've met the age, when you're old enough to retire, and now you have the service, you got enough service to be eligible to retire. In fact, you might even have what most would consider a full career, you know, 30 years, 35 years of service. Can you retire? Well, I don't know. Yeah, it depends on how much are you going to spend? You know, how much are you spending now? Do you have debt? Do you still have a mortgage? Um, are you downsizing? Are, are you going to move to a lower cost of living area? So it really boils down to the numbers. You know, make sure that you can afford it. Just because you're eligible doesn't necessarily mean you can afford it. You know, you see, hear people saying, well, I'm living on a fixed income or I can't spend money now because, you know, I'm living in retirement. You don't want to have to be that person, right? You want to be able to do the same things, enjoy the same things in retirement like you did while you worked, which takes income. So I like to see it when an employee can retire on their same net income or better than when they were working. And I see it all the time, you know, because... We have a pension benefit under FERS, we have social security entitlement, and we have this generous TSP account that provides matching agency funds and the ability to save with dollar cost averaging throughout our careers. I see people every day who can retire on their net income and then some once they retire. Now it's not everybody, and for some people it might pay for them to work a couple of more years, you know, two or three more years of saving, two or three more years added to your FERS benefit and social security history can do wonders to um, make it a more financial retirement. You know, and then we can talk about the mental readiness for retirement, right? Not everybody is mentally ready to retire. I know I'm not, and I don't think you are, Bob, are you? <laughs> no, I, no, I, I, I think my wires are... <laughs> hooked up till the end whenever yeah, that yeah. might be now i do yeah. try to take care of myself so that the uh, so the finality is later rather than sooner yeah i i still find a challenge enjoyment satisfaction so as long as all those words keep getting associated with what i'm doing i don't plan to give it up anytime soon but i think the nice thing for you and i bob is we don't have nine to five jobs and that makes a big difference. You know, when you have to report to work at a certain hour and you have to punch the clock, I, I think it's more of a job. Uh, and, and it's something that, you know, we want to be able to structure our own life. So I think retirement where you can, you know, live according to your own schedule makes a big difference. Okay. Now, uh, I guess one more money question. Um, should I leave the money in the TSP after retirement or should I move it to an IRA? I think we touched on it, but let's make sure we did. What do yeah, you think? We didn't really specifically talk about that decision. Um, you know, moving money to an IRA, first of all, who's telling you to move it? I'm always cautious when somebody says, oh, my financial person told me to move my money to an IRA. And I want to make sure who that financial person is. Is it an insurance salesman rather than a 
certified financial advisor, you know, where is the advice coming from and what's the motivation for moving it? You know, there could be some good valid reasons to move money from the TSP to an IRA to give you some more flexibility on your investments, to allow you to employ something a lot of financial advisors call a bucket strategy. So you're taking money from different savings buckets as time goes on to help mitigate the volatility of the markets. Um, there could be some reasons for moving the TSP to an IRA if you're over the minimum retirement age or over the required mi minimum distribution age to get some tax savings because you can make, um, what are they called, Bob, whenever you're contributing to a charity, a charitable distribution? A donation. That's a, do a donation. Yep. And that can be done from an IRA, but you can't do it from the thrift. Um, so there's some, some things you can employ through IRAs that may not be available through the TSP. So it really pays to explore all your options. If you are going to move money from the TSP to an IRA, I generally recommend don't close your TSP account. Leave at least a few hundred dollars in there so that if you change your mind, you can move it back. Because once your account's closed, uh, you can't open it again unless you come back to federal employment. But you can move money in and out of the TSP if you want to. Okay, I got a, and I got, I look at all the questions and I, I think we may have touched on this, but I'm going to bring it up. Um, is it opinion or fact that Social Security is a guaranteed lifetime payment? There are no guarantees, are there, Bob? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think what a lot of people are worried about when it comes to Social Security and, and probably for valid reason is that the Social Security trust funds are no longer able to promise to pay the benefits that you might be expecting for the rest of your life as it stands. So according to the trustees of Social Security, they say that by 20, I think it's 2034, sometimes it's 2033, depending on the year, because things do affect this. But let's say it's 2034. So in the next 10 years, if nothing changes, then across the board cuts of close to 25% of Social Security promised benefits are going to take place. I don't think we'll see that happen because we are so dependent on social insurance, which is what Social Security is as a country, that Congress won't let that happen. That just would be an outrage. So there's a whole laundry list of changes that Congress can implement through legislation that would avoid that across the board cut in benefits. And those changes might include raising the tax rate, raising the income subject to the social security taxes, changing the age uh, for full benefit amounts or even early benefit amounts. But we saw what happened in France when that happened. So they gotta be careful about that. Um, they can change the calculation of benefits to be a little more tilted to provide more to those who earn less and less to those who earn more. So there's all kinds of things and Congress knows what they are. It's a matter of creating the, the piece of legislation that's going to make that happen with the least impact on people who need it most. And uh, to avoid turning against, you know, turning the voters against them, right? Congress doesn't want to lose votes over this legislation. So it's a pretty tricky thing to change when Congress has to make major amendments to a program that affects almost every American. So um, that's what has to happen. I think it will happen. It's just a matter of when. All righty. Um, you, um, you come on the show and um, you also um, broadcast, um, you, you do broadcasts and the like. So how does somebody uh, get in touch with Tammy Flanagan? Well, I have a website, as we all do these days, and my website is retirefederal.com, R-E-T-I-R-E, federal.com, retirefederal.com, and you can contact me through the website and be happy to, to answer questions or provide you with individual counseling. And, of course, always call nitpink.com or NITP for your training needs, especially if you're an agency training officer. All righty, what, what do we got, Andrew? We got two, two minutes. minutes left, Tammy. <laughs> two minutes. So what, what's our final parting words, Bob? What would you tell someone who's planning to retire as far as tax strategies? I'll put it on you. 
<laughs> okay. Well, the tax strategies uh, under you got to understand first that a tax deduction doesn't necessarily make a, a, a good investment. And somebody's going to say, "No, it's crazy. I, you know, I I get a tax deduction when I put money into my traditional TSP or my my IRA, maybe." Um, but it, you know, it, it's going in there and it's not coming back out unless you take it out. And if you take it out at um, a younger age, under fifty-five or fifty-nine and a half, it, there'd be a penalty. Now, I'm I'm not I'm not a negative person. It's just a need to be aware, um, uh, especially you know, on sometimes like the law enforcement group where they can retire earlier. They're maybe not fully aware of that gap between retirement and fifty-nine and a half. Um, you know, where to invest it? Well, you know, you got fixed income coming from the pension, the annuity. Uh, if you take Social Security early, uh, it's going to be the same thing as taking it late. It's going to be largely taxable. Some some states don't tax it, but uh, most states do. So it's the economics of it. Um, and, you know, what maybe you did very good in one year, but maybe not so good in the second if it's outside of like um, uh, the fixed income, uh, the G fund. The G fund varies. Um, so just just watch. But before you take it, watch. And then what would it do to, to taxes? If you're full-time working and a single person, then your income is going to be subject to taxes should you add a, a lot more uh, to it. But it's not just a normal tax rate. It's your highest rate. So uh, look before you leap. That's good advice, Bob. And all things uh, retirement, look before you leap. Ask questions ahead of time. That's it. And how does somebody get in touch with you again <clears throat> or your website? Retirefederal.com. Okay. <clears throat> Thanks, Tammy. Thanks, Thanks Andrew. Bob. Andrew <laughs> is the ever-efficient engineer, but, but he never goes on. on, on uh, maybe one day we'll have Andrew uh, be the guest. <laughs> All righty, Tammy. Thank you very much. And uh, talk to you soon. And listeners, thanks for listening. Bye-bye. You've been listening to For Your Benefit, presented by NITP and sponsored by WEPA. Please tune in next Monday at 10 a.m. for a topic solely devoted to you, the federal employee. This show can also be heard on demand at federalnewsradio.com. Search For Your Benefit. Thanks for listening.